Uh, this passage I thought was appropriate for Father's Day. You know, I haven't done a Father's Day or Mother's Day sermon for quite a while. After decades, you feel like there's not much new you can say to the topic. But uh, I felt a particular urging uh, with uh, today being Father's Day. And happy Father's Day, by the way, okay? Um, I think there's a great need today. And I think that this passage encourages our men and certainly women as well that we can look upon the Lord so that we not faint, so that we don't give up. Uh, many feel exhausted. Many need strength. <clears throat> and I believe that as we wait upon the Lord, as this passage instructs, we will find that. Uh, this means that the Lord is our strength. Simple, foundational, but we forget, like the Israelites forgot a lot about that kind of a thing, right? The Lord is our strength. And we go to him for wisdom. Isaiah, I think, provides needed direction for men today. Uh, when we look at the cultural milieu regarding manhood. Manhood has been subjected to really a critical theory, and the result has not been pretty. Uh, whether it's mansplaining or trying to fix something, men are often, even just on an individual level, told to butt out and back off. And those who um, shrug off any claim that, you know, men are getting the short end of the stick will say, well, yeah, boo-hoo. Um, it's about time that men get the short end of the stick, right? Um, so you hear that as well. I'm certainly not here to defend men behaving badly, but to hold up a standard. It doesn't seem all that insightful, frankly, but in today's world, uh, it runs against the grain that it's a good thing to be a man. <laughs> you wouldn't think that that would be outrageous, but it's a good thing to be a man. One social commentator said this, <clears throat> the answer to toxic masculinity isn't less masculinity. It's better masculinity. <laughs> the growing problem in today's society isn't that men are too masculine, it's that they're not masculine enough. Hmm. Certainly not everyone disagrees. From Newsweek, the APA, which is the American Psychological Association, declared that traditional masculinity is psychologically harmful. Uh, they released practical uh, guidelines for therapy with men and boys, and in the press release, kind of giving an intro, it was very clear that this was an assault on men and boys. Women have a right to hate men, wrote blogger Anthony James Williams, 
Talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer, said John Stoltenberg, author of Refusing to Be a Man. James Cameron, director of Avatar, said, testosterone is a toxin that you have to slowly work out of your system. <clears throat> One New York Post writer said, while our culture has inspired young women with catchphrases like girl power and the future is female, their male counterparts have been told there's something intrinsically wrong with their masculinity. <clears throat> I suppose there'll be some that will say, well, you know, this is hyperbole. This is not the majority. Um, well, maybe they don't think those exact same things. But I think there's still an assault. There's, at the, at the least, okay, there's great confusion on what being masculine is or what it should be, right? Best-selling author Peggy Ornstein recently spent two years speaking to boys across America, and in a lengthy piece in The Atlantic, she cites a survey of over 1,000 um, men and boys, 10 to 19 years old, on a variety of issues. Ornstein writes this, the definition of masculinity seems to be contracting. When asked what traits society values most in boys, only 2% of males in the survey said honesty and morality, and only 8% said leadership skills. When I asked them what they liked about being a boy, most of them drew a blank. Huh? Mused Josh, a college sophomore. That's interesting. I never thought about that. You hear a lot about what is wrong with guys. In the Wall Street Journal, Erica Komisar writes, in my practice as a psychotherapist, I've seen an increase of depression in young men who feel emasculated in a society that is hostile to masculinity. Many men are lost, disillusioned, without direction. Unfortunately, it gets worse when you add the component of Christianity to the mix. Have you watched the show Shiny Happy People about the Duggar family and the sexual escapades of Bill Gothard, the disgraced former head of the Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts? The show fuses bad male leadership, fundamentalist Christianity, and sexual deviance all together as if that is the expected combination. Hannah Posh, co-founder of the Church Two Movement says, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we, are, uh, that we see permeating American Christianity today. Did you know that? That there's a rape culture in American Christianity or so says Mrs. Posh. The book, Violence Against Wives, The Case Against the Patriarchy, says the seeds of wife-beating lie in the subordination of females and their subjection to male leadership and control. 
And conservative religion makes such relationships seem natural, morally just, and sacred. Now, the facts say otherwise, but I'll get to that later. So how did we get here? How in the world has our society been so topsy-turvy? White is black, black is white. Don't know what a male is, don't know what a female is. How have men come under this negative light? Well, some point to the Industrial Revolution. Men and women who used to be together in family enterprises were now split with men leaving the home uh, and working jobs. So for the first time in American history, boys were growing up without day-to-day contact with their fathers. The mothers were the primary caregivers and source of moral instruction. Fast forward, and we read Ornstein again in The Miseducation of the American Boy, saying during the second half of the 20th century, traditional paths to manhood, early marriage, breadwinning, began to close along with the positive traits associated with them. Today, many parents are unsure of how to raise a boy, what sort of masculinity to encourage in their sons, But as I learned from talking with boys themselves, the culture of adolescence, which fuses hyper-rationality with domination, sexual uh, conquest, and a glorification of male violence, fills the void. I would often ask the question when I taught at the college, and it, this was a philosophy class or an a, uh, ethics class, and I would find a way to weave this in, but I would ask, how does a boy become a man? Now, you had the usual cultural answers of male escapades, but none could seem to even get close to the bullseye. Uh, There's another factor that may explain the negative light upon men, and that's the influence of the Darwinian worldview. If humans evolved from the animal world, the implication is that we all have this animalistic nature, and that's the core of man. So survival of the fittest, that humans have triumphed over other species, not by reason, not by restraint of one's passions, but by force. And instead of authentic manhood being in, uh, that were created in the image of God, man is characterized as having animal passions and instincts. In the words of Nancy Piercy, the secular script for manhood was redefined as crude and combative, governed by the biological instincts for lust and power. Zane Gray, the Western American author, said that in his Westerns, he was trying to recapture the experience of our evolutionary ancestors. Nature developed man according to the biological facts of evolution, he wrote. Something of the wild and primitive should forever remain instinctive to the human race. 
and Persiads, male writers began to claim that civilization was merely a thin veneer over our animal nature. The idea that humans arose from animal origins and are barbarians at heart was becoming part of the socially constructed definition of manhood. Now, while this may explain some of the outward influences, I think G.K. Chesterton gets to more of the heart of the matter when we consider this milieu we're in that refuses to accept God's created order. He said this, what is wrong with our civilization can be said with one word, unreality. We are in no danger either from the vices or the virtues of the Vikings. We are in danger of forgetting all the facts, good and bad, in a haze of high-minded phraseology. Boy, if anything nails today, that does. But I think God's perspective says it best in terms of what we've gotten away from. The Apostle Paul wrote, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Solomon wrote, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Remember your creator. Before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. John wrote, all things come into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And in Job, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So men, let's start with a dose of reality. You were made by God, Amen. not a random process. As a created being, you have God's stamp of approval. It's a good thing. Now, for a woman, the same is true. Being female is a gift of God. And being male is a gift from God. Your identity is defined by the creator who made you. Your identity is then solidified as a child of God. There's only one person who gets to make the call to define who we are, and it's our Creator God. God is the one who defines our identity. All other sources fall short and lead us down a path of destruction. You are not defined by your feelings. You are not defined by the opinions of others. 
or by your circumstances. You are not defined by your successes or your failures. You are not defined by the car you drive or the amount of money you make or the house you live in. You know, some Eastern religions speak of a person losing his or her personal identity as he develops greater God consciousness. Christianity teaches that we discover our unique identity in God. As Tim Keller pointed out, our identity is received. It is not earned. Knowing we are secure in him, loved by him, gives us the confidence to fulfill our roles. However, and if Christianity has gotten off the rails on this, I think it's in this. We are not defined by our roles, either as a spouse or a parent. If we operate as if fulfilling our roles is our identity, we submit to a fleshly, performance-based acceptance. Our roles are what we do. Our identity is who we are and how we derive our value. When we seek our identity outside our creator, we are like cracked pots that cannot hold water. Jeremiah said, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, okay, forgotten me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Our worldviews, our perspectives, without God, cannot hold water. When we reject our createdness by God, we declare our independence from him. See, the attack upon manhood is a rejection of our createdness and is an attack on divine authority. I get to define who I am, not God. And independent of God, we desire to do whatever we want to do. And then we declare our freedom. But my declared freedom becomes a cage in which I cannot escape my self-induced treadmill of trying to find meaning and significance and value and all these other things. And I'm in bondage to the cultural definitions or lack of them for the sexes. The further I get from the creator, the faster I'm trying to attain and declare my freedom and independence. It's the epitome of Romans 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done.
when we try to find our identity and value in our roles, something that they were not intended to do, we're always going to fall short. We never do enough. Knowing how humans are designed, I think, is important in understanding our significance. When I look at that show, and by the way, I couldn't finish it. <laughs> Shiny, happy people. I attended a Bill Gothard conference as a kid, and something in my spirit bothered me. I just wasn't mature enough to figure it all out. Besides, I think, some of the theological errors that were there. But I see a whole segment of fundamentalist Christians seeking significance by just refining their roles. Now, we ought to accept our roles. We ought to be obedient to God in our roles. But that's different than my identity. That doesn't make these people bad people. But they're like most Christians, many of us. It's just that the rest of us don't have a TV show to showcase all our flaws. Listen, a man doesn't need to apologize for being a man. He is created by God as a man. And that's a good thing. Some say men are the problem. Again, yes, there are men who behave badly. But I'm talking about just being a man. That's made out to be the problem, as if there is no value or benefit to being a man. And then this is often juxtaposed with being a Christian, as if a Christian man is especially harmful and promotes sexual abuse. Again, not to say that those things didn't happen in some cases, but it's by far the exception and not the rule. Here's some interesting things to think about. It's Christianity that offers a view of manhood that elevates gentleness, love, and compassion, and character for a man. That's not all, but it includes that. Men who lead as Christians are called to be servant leaders, doing what is best for the family or the organization or the church, not just to fulfill their own needs. This was modeled by Jesus, who was gentle and strong, both at the same time. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, Mark writes. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Nancy Piercy has pointed to recent data that demonstrates it's a lie that religiously conservative men are the worst. Now, when I use the term conservative, I'm not using it politically, I'm using it theologically, okay? Psychologists and sociologists have been conducting research on Christian couples, and surprisingly, they found that religious men who are theologically conservative and who attend church regularly are the most loving husbands 
with the most engaged families and engaged fathers. Similarly, the wives of such men are the most likely to say that their husbands express affection and understanding. They rank highest in terms of saying they feel loved and appreciated by their husbands. And these couples are less likely to get divorced. They have the lowest rates of domestic violence of any group in the United States. But that's not what you've heard. Sociologist Brad Wilcox of the University of Virginia and one of the nation's top marriage researchers wrote an article in the New York Times and he said, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. Wilcox said, church tells men that they are accountable before God for how they treat their family. Let's face it, the church is one of the few institutions in the United States where men encounter other men who are interested in talking about fatherhood and marriage and interested also in practicing what they hear preached. You don't often find it at work. You don't often find it in the sports stadium. You don't find it in the local tavern, but in church. What you find is a message, an ethos that is family-focused and gives men the motivation to attend to their families. But yet most of us have heard that being a man, being a conservative Christian man, is the worst thing that you can be. But see, the data has been skewered. And again, I thank Piercy for pointing this out. Because in the surveys, nominal Christians are lumped with the conservative, theological, committed Christians. And there are great differences between the two and how they function in their families. So, you know, anybody can mark Christian when maybe they've gone to church once in the last two years. And yeah, you know, I grew up Baptist, but they have no commitment. They are, in fact, the nominal Christians the least engaged with their children, and the wives report the lowest level of happiness, and they're more likely to get divorced. But committed Christians who attend church regularly are doing much better than advertised. It's not only a good thing to be a man, it's a really good thing to be a committed Christian man. I know that there are voices that seek to discourage and even eliminate manhood. But I believe that men, we are given a great opportunity for influence, even in the midst of all the noise. Psychologist Vern Bankston is an award-winning 35-year, um, conducted an award-winning 35-year longitudinal study and he found that 68% of children who have a close relationship with their father will carry on their father's level of religious participation. 
That's encouragement, that it's a good thing for men to take their faith seriously and to seek to influence others. Christian writer Ann Kennedy claims that in today's culture, she has to tell her sons, you are not toxic. Do you know that? You are not toxic. Being masculine is not toxic. I say that because my boys are kind and interesting and good, and I don't want them limping along, afraid and anxious, through their very lives just because they are boys. End quote. Lawyer and political commentator David French argues, we do our sons no favors when we tell them that they don't have to answer that voice inside them that tells them to be strong, be brave, and to lead when it comes to the crisis besetting our young men. Traditional masculinity, rightly understood, isn't the problem. It can be a part of the cure. That was in the Huffington Post. But listen, I know that there are many men who feel lonely, discouraged, and not understood. I know that there are men who feel criticized and have little knowledge or relationship with mentors and how to traffic through all of this. I had a getaway with about a half dozen pastors recently, and just yesterday I talked at length with two pastors who were reflecting on the greatest challenges within ministry. And I think it's safe to conclude that generally the issues of pastors are things that all men experience. They're often hurt, and they're often hurt by some of those closest to them. And they don't always know how to process the hurt, how to forgive, what it means to set up boundaries, and so many feel powerless. I want to start by saying this. Now, when I say start, all I gave was just the introduction so far. we got another hour and a half to go, okay? <laughs> I want to say this, that it's a lie to think that you are powerless, okay? You, in fact, have a supreme mentor and savior who understands. Think of this for a second. You know, I, I hear pastors talking about, you know, well, I had this problem with a board member and this problem with an elder and this one hurt me, blah, blah, blah. And then you get to thinking, oh, wait a minute, Jesus had within the closest dozen people in his life a guy that he knew was going to conspire to have him killed. He didn't turn him in. Just continued doing the Father's will. He had one of his closest friends, imagine this, denying him at one of the most critical junctures of his life. Can you imagine? One of your closest friends? Doesn't even know him. 
He asked some of his closest friends, can you, can you do this for me for the next short bit and, and, and pray because this is going to be a great struggle. And what do they do? They fall asleep in a garden. Jesus understands not only what it's like for a man to suffer, but what it feels like to be let down. Yet, Jesus knew his identity, his value, his worth, his connection to God. Disappointment did not deter him from doing the Father's will. So here's the question. How does the beleaguered husband or discouraged father or, or angry man do the Father's will? If I don't fully answer that for you today, it'd be a good thing to meditate on. Remember Peter, one of the closest friends of Jesus? I mean, he expressed great signs of affection to Jesus. And he told him, I'm never going to forsake you. <laughs> and he, he wanted to protect him when people came to get Jesus. Remember that? And he accosted the Roman guard. Yet within close proximity of these affectionate words and gestures, he denies Jesus. He falls asleep in the garden. And before that, we know that he expressed some powerful faith to take a step onto water, and then he allowed fear and independence to sink him. I can relate to that. I think Peter is just like most of us. It's so human to express great affection and then fall short in action. It's no wonder that after the resurrection, Jesus asked Peter three times if he, if he loved him. And Peter was kind of hurt by this repetitive questioning. But Jesus wanted Peter to see that love is just words unless it's followed by action. I've heard your words, Peter. But can you follow that up with action? And Jesus told Peter to feed the sheep or really pastor well. Peter had been hurt. Fearful, angry, and then something happened. Something between the resurrection and Pentecost, Peter was changed. There was time spent in an upper room, praying, and the Holy Spirit filled the disciples. Peter did not get a degree between the resurrection and Pentecost. 
Peter didn't go to a leadership seminar. He didn't get some androgel and wiped it on himself. The presence of God was now in the man. The truth of God was now in the man. The love of God was now in the man. His identity was changed a new creature. And Peter was no longer living for the approval of his peers or for the approval of his parents. He was a man created by God, now a child of God, the Holy Spirit in him, and he was fit for any task ahead of him. Men, we need to remind ourselves, if you know Christ here today, that you are a man of God, and the Lord is your strength. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall feel exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Either the word of God is true, and this can be our experience, or you can forget the last 45 minutes that you've heard. If God is real, and of course I believe that he is, what's the difference in us being a Christian man than just a man? Is it not the presence of God in our lives, his love and his truth? I think there's a couple ways we can respond to this. Number one is to confess and repent of our broken cisterns. See, I think there are a lot of men that have taken their umbilical cord and they have tried to plug it in to their spouse or their children, or their job, or something else to feed them and give them significance and power and strength. I've learned in my vocabulary to say to my wife, and, and I didn't learn this early on, and we had issues that were my issues, but I've learned to say, um, you know, this was hurtful, and it would be easier for me if this would happen instead of 
blaming her and saying, you know, you always do this, or how come you can't blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, I was looking to have her fill my needs. But if Christ is truly my security, yes, there are still hurts, but how I handle them is much different. I'm not saying I have it all figured out. But I'm saying Christ is our rock. And we can go to him. So I have to confess and repent of my broken cisterns. Whatever those things are for you. Maybe you've used sex or porn. Maybe you've used money. A lot of things can be, you know, that thing that's the broken cistern. And then we need to acknowledge that Christ is our strength. Now, this is the difficult part because I think for many of us, the relationship with God may be so lacking, we don't even know where to start. Have you even sat still with God for 30 minutes without any interruption? to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart on these things. That's what it's going to take. It's not going to be some lightning from above. Well, I suppose God could do that, but I haven't seen that. It's, it's arduous. It, it's like wrestling with the angel, right? And my, my will becomes subservient to his, and my life is open hands for his use. But I have to wrestle with my flesh and the world's perspective and even Satan himself. Humble myself and realize, God, it's either you or I'm going to break. At that point, at that point, that's where God always wants us. I used to think that feeling desperate was not good for a Christian. And now I'm like, you know, I think that should always be in me. I'm desperate for him. As a deer pants for the water, so my soul looks to you. And when a deer pants for the water, it's like, I better get a drink or I'm going to die. And that's where I need to be because I have tried all these other things and they don't work. Christ, you are my life. My identity is found in you. My confidence is in you. Let's pray.